welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages driven by our pastor. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. So here we are now in week eight of Romans. We have been walking through the book of Romans kind of week by week, just going through a lot of it, having to move through some of it quickly and some of it more in depth and and kind of feeling our way through the book of Romans, trying to get an understanding. So let's give a quick recap as to where we are, and then we'll jump straight into Romans chapter nine. So the first thing is this, we had to establish the fact that there was a problem and the problem was our sin, right? We, we are all sinners. And essentially, Romans 1 and 2, basically, Paul just went after us, right? And just straight for the throat kind of thing. Like, he was like, here we go. I'm going to break you down so that we can all understand that we are wretched people, right? And he even uses the word, uh, I believe in Romans 7, is what a wretched man I am, right? We are all sinners. And so the, the, the encouragement in that is that there is not a group of people who are righteous on their own and then a group of people who are sinners. But the fact of the matter is every one of us are sinners. We are born into sin thanks to the work of Adam and, and his flesh giving into the temptation. Right? So we, we have this issue called sin and something had to be done because of it. So then we move in as we continue walking. We find this wonderful phrase or this wonderful word called justification. Justification. We are justified by our faith in Christ. And what does that mean? It means that, that we are made as if we had never sinned, right? And so in that process of justification, that moment, we receive Christ. We step into faith in him. We place our, 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 our lives in his hand. We say, Lord, I trust you. I believe you. My faith is in you. All of a sudden, we are completely wiped clean, so to speak, and we take on and are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, right? And so it is this justification moment. It's we don't necessarily necessarily see it, right? There are some where you go, whoa, you look different, right? You know, you kind of like this whole radical transformation, but, but nonetheless, what is taking place and taken in the heart and in the soul is this incredible transformation that happens in the moment of justification and salvation, right? And so, so from there, then we learn this, that, that we now stand in grace. And what does that mean? It means we are no longer bound to sin, that in grace, we have freedom to live outside of sin, that means we have died to sin, right? We were resurrected again in Christ. So here we see, so now we are no longer bound to have to live in sin. Because of the spirit within us, we have the ability to overcome sin and to walk outside of sin. Does that mean if you sin, you are not a Christian? No, right? There are going to be mistakes and failures, right? We are in this process of sanctification, right? And so in that, it is this ongoing work and development of of, of God creating in in us and making us the men and women of God he's called us to be, right? But what that means is, is that we now have the spirit within us to overcome. We stand in grace, we walk in this, and we have freedom outside of sin. But it also means we are free from the guilt and the weight of the law, That it's not by our own works and by our doing that we gain righteousness, but it is through faith and the grace that we receive that we are made righteous. 
And so we talked for a little bit for a few weeks about, is it, you know, grace, is it this license to sin? And we said, no, it's not a license to sin. That's a misuse and a misinterpretation, misunderstanding of what grace is. And then we said, so is the law, our, our, this is the standard in which we must live by? We're like, no, 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 it's not this weight of obligation to the law and to live according to it in, in order. It's, it's legalism. We're like, well, no, it's not that. It's this understanding that by the grace we've received from Christ, by the gift that we've been given, we now can walk in righteousness and choose to do so as an act of obedience and of honoring the Lord. And all of that leads us then to last week, and we talked in Romans 8, that now because of the work on the cross, we are not condemned, but Christ took our penalty for us, and we are no longer under the weight of condemnation because we stand in Christ. And then as we continued through, we found that that, that we are, are, are not separated from the love of God, right? And, and that in all these things, we are more than conquerors, right? And so neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons, right? Angels nor demons is what we really meant to say. Dangels are not a thing and are not biblical. In case you are wondering, we just made that one up. So it's, I'm going to make up some sort of theological term there. We'll come back to that at another day, right? No, we're not going to do that. Anyways, angels nor demons, right, can separate us from the love of God. So it's such an encouraging word, right, that man, that God loves us. He is for us, and he is, he is with us. Amen? So today, we're going to jump into Romans chapter 9, and we're going to deal with a... A difficult topic to grasp and understand. In fact, many theologians, as you read, will say, listen, at the end of the day, we don't get it. Isn't that exciting? So just let that be an encouragement to you right up front. We're going to talk a lot, and we're going to leave here with more questions than when we started. I'm just kidding. Hopefully not. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're probably going to go, wow, okay, yeah, I don't get it. I, I, my mind doesn't grasp it. I, I don't fully I can't wrap my, I can't get it, right? So this is kind of where we are. So we're going to be in Romans chapter nine, which is a lot of fun for a lot of people. And it's one of those where I go, I wish Paul were here himself to explain it to us um, as he was led of the spirit to write it. So let's start. The very first thing is uh, Paul's concern for Israel. Like I said, we're jumping straight in today. And in Romans 9, verses 1 through 5, Paul says this. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all forever praised. Amen. Do you hear the anguish in the heart of Paul? He starts right away with this, listen, I'm speaking the truth. I'm telling you that what you're about to hear from me is absolute truth. Now, this isn't to, to say that everything else I've said doesn't carry the same weight, but to understand his heart's cry in this moment, to understand the deep affection that he has for the people of Israel, the people of his own race. He's like, I am one of them by nationality, by birth. I am a part of this group. And you say, do you hear how my heart is in anguish and turmoil for them? 
Because it's easy to look at the words of Paul, especially as he has gone after the law and said, no, it's not the law, it's not the law, which all of, of Israel says, no, it is the law, it is the law, it is the law. And he's going, that's not it, that's not it. And so you could get this perception or this thought that Paul goes, you know what, my readers who are, are from Israel that are in this Roman church may get this perception or idea that I am anti-Jew in this moment. And he's like, that is not the case. He's saying, understand, hear me, that my heart breaks heavily for the people of my own race. He says, I have a desire. Look at verse three. He says, he says, if I could, he said, for I wish that I myself were cursed. He's saying, I wish that I could take their penalty for their salvation. He said, I wish I could, could go myself in their place so that all of them might be saved. He said, I wish I could take on their penalty. And it's not a possibility, right? It's not this, this thing that the proper grammatical construction of the word used here is not, I did wish, but I could desire this, this longing and this desiring to take their place because of his depth of love for the people of Israel. He's in anguish over the fact that so many have not accepted Christ and furthermore that they have rejected Christ altogether. It's hurting. It tears him up on the inside. Paul walks through some of the the blessings and the gifts that have been given to the Israelites as he walks through verses four and five. And he says, he talks to the adoption of the sonship and, and this term adoption hadn't been given to the Israelite people anywhere else in scripture, but in Deuteronomy, it speaks to the fact that they were called, they were chosen by God, right? They're his chosen people. And, and that's kind of where we see kind of what Paul is pulling from is this idea of this adoption. He's like, God chose you. And then more than that, the glory was with you. He said, we, we had the Ark of the Covenant. We could carry it into battle knowing that the glory was with us. And, and I, I feel like as I read this, that almost as if, as if Paul in this moment is in a sense having kind of a funeral in his heart for the people of Israel. And, and, and maybe not to that extreme, but the understanding that the words are like, it, it's like when you go to a funeral and you hear all of the great things about the person, right? And it's this incredible, uh, like, man, they were so good. They did this, they did that. They had all of this going for them. And, and Paul is almost in this moment, like, man, they were adopted into sonship. They had the glory. The glory was with them. And, and, and they had the, the, the covenants and the law, the law which leads us to understand how sinful we are. We've talked about the law at depth already through this process. And then the temple worship and the promises. And, and he's going, do you see all that they were given, all that God had blessed you with in order to help pull you continually into this direction? And he talks about the patriarchs. He's like, man, we had Moses and we had Abraham and we had, we had Isaac and, 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 and Joshua and these incredible men who helped lead our nation through difficulty and into battle and, and through with the glory of God, win the day and come out victorious. The Lord was with us. And he said, we have these patriarchs that who we can trace the human ancestry of the Messiah. Do you feel this heartache of going, you, you were the people which God gave the Messiah to. And there's this, he said, I love these people. And, and I, if I could, I would take their place, but I can't. 
And don't miss the application here. The important thing in all of this is to see the fact that, that Paul's desperate desire for the lost to be saved. His desperate desire to do whatever he could do if it were possible to even take their place. And we already know that Paul says, I'm obligated to preach. Like, I have to preach. I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to tell people about Jesus. So it's not a matter of him staying quiet and going, oh, I wish I could just take their place. No, Paul is out and he is preaching. He's in the temple. He's stirring things up. He's being beaten for his words, right? There's, there's, he's doing it. He's out there sharing the word. And yet so many are rejecting and his heart is breaking and hurting for the lost people of his family. And it kind of stirs that conviction in me of, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough to reach the lost people of my family? Am I doing enough to reach the lost people of my nation, of my city, of my community? And it should stir all of us in our hearts. It should spur us all on to go, man, Paul is an incredible example for us, right? He's obviously not Christ, but we look at Paul as an incredible man of God, no doubt, right? We will not belittle the effect that he had on humanity with his words that are found in Scripture. But nonetheless, he was just a man and had the conviction in his heart that what he said and what he did mattered. And that it stirred him so deeply to say, I need to do all I can to reach Everyone I can reach. Paul's deep concern for Israel. The second thing is this. The true ch- children of Israel. The true children of Israel. That is harder to say than it is to type. I'm just going to say. <laughs> Didn't anticipate getting twisted up on that one. Let's read Romans 9. Uh, starting in verse 6 through verse 8. And it says, It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So the question is, who are the children of God, right? Who are the children of God? What we see here, first of all, it's not about your natural birth. Yes, they were the chosen people. Israel was the chosen people of God, right? And, and, but we see in, in, in this process where Paul's going, but not all of them are the children of Abraham. Because he had talked already, we read in Romans 5, that it, is, it was Abraham's faith that was credited to him as righteousness and not his deeds, right? And so he's saying it is based on our faith. If we're going to be the children of God, if we're going to be the true children of Israel, right? We, we, it, it stems from and is built upon our faith in Christ. It's not based on being an Israelite. It's based on where our faith is. Many of the descendants of Abraham were rejected because of their lack of faith. Your birth and your parents' place in grace is not sufficient to save you or to make you a child of God. That's what we see here is that it's not that, well, my parents are Christians and therefore I sit with them or I, I know that they... No, no, that, that is not adequate. That doesn't cover. It's about our own individual place 
in Christ and our understanding and our faith. So let's pick up in verse 9. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now that's a pretty strong statement. And if we were to leave it at that, I promise you, you would walk out of here going, I don't understand. Uh, it's, you go, what, wait a minute. So God hated a baby? When you read it at face value, right? It's kind of this, he hadn't even done anything. So let's talk through this for a minute because there's a lot there that needs to be dissected and looked at and understood. So here's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is a difficult difficult aspect in theology. Because, first of all, there are far crazy varying differences of opinions and understandings on the sovereignty of God. And I would say this, many theologians come to the fact in agreement that there are just some things that are beyond our realm of understanding and reasoning, and we can only place so much understanding in so many of these words, right? Because God is higher than us. He thinks higher than us. His ways are higher than our ways, that kind of thing, right? So as we deal with the sovereignty of God, we trust in the fact that, one, God is sovereign, right? And we can trust that. We can say, okay, God, you are sovereign. And we can also go, there are going to be things about the sovereignty of God that may not exactly sit well with us, but at the end of the day, we trust God in his sovereignty, is that, is it, can we go from there with that and just saying, okay, and, and in that, we just say, Lord, we, we step out in faith and we trust you as the leader, as our leader. We say, God, there are things that you will do that are beyond our understanding. And, and, and it helps us even just think of it, even in your workplace and stuff to say, okay, I can trust my leadership. If I begin to say, I can think in these realms, they have to make decisions outside of our realm of understanding and our realm of thinking. And we trust that, right? In the same way, we have to trust the Lord with some of these difficult things to say, God, you're sovereign and we trust you. So let's walk through this a little bit uh, because the sovereignty of God is a uh, one for some, it can be like, doctrinally shattering or, or theologically shattering uh, if it's misused uh, or, or if this understanding is simply just abused, right? And so, so let's talk about it. Um, we have to gain an understanding of what is said uh, in this text, right? To be able to fully grasp what's going on. So the statement that Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So even before they were born. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing this. The simple fact is that God had a predetermined plan, right? He had a plan and a purpose that he was working to fulfill, right? And so we also have to understand the wording. So let's look, first of all, Jacob I loved. Jacob I loved. Basically, here's the, here's the deal. The reality is, is God had a specific purpose in a lineage in which Jesus was to be born. He's working towards the Messiah. Well, he can't come from both twins. It's not 
possible and, and it wasn't going to happen. And so the Lord says, I love Jacob is the chosen line in which the Messiah will be born from. And in that there comes the blessing and the favor of God on him and on his family. And we see that. And so when they say Jacob, I loved, it's this sense of there is an added affection, so to speak, and blessing poured out on that. Now, can I understand that? Can I explain that any more beyond that? Honestly, not really, but, but it, it's hard to balance in the understanding of, then he said, Esau, I hated. Well, we have to understand the Hebrew use of the comparative nature between love and hatred, because it's used often in, in, in the Hebrew text as a comparison and not as a direct statement of fact. So for instance, so he says, Esau, I hated. Well, let's, uh, first of all, we have to understand this. First John 4, do y'all know what first John 4 tells us? God is love. So let's start there first and foremost, okay? Because we have to have a, a well-shaped theology and understanding of who God is. It says God is love. It's three words, one sentence. It's John, uh, 1 John 4, 4. There's more to that verse than that. So you, if you're going, wait, I thought I knew all the short verses. No, it's just part of that verse. But it says God is love. So the character and the nature of who God is, is love. Now, side note, don't misinterpret that as love is God because they're not interchangeable. And that's a whole other thing for a whole other time. The statement is God is love. So out of the character of God, his choices he makes stem from love. The things he creates are birthed out of love. The, the, you know, everything that God is, is birthed from love because he is love. So discipline from God comes from love. Right, And so as you walk through this, his hatred towards sin comes from love, right? His sinning his son comes from love, salvation from love, right? So when we read this, it's hard for us to go, wait, he says he hated, but so you have to understand the understanding in this. And it's this comparative nature that they use oftentimes to basically just show the difference of greater love or affection compared to the other. So God didn't outright, it's not a statement of he legitimately hated this child and had said, okay, you are worthless to me. You are nothing to me. Therefore be cast out of my, out of my presence, right? No, no. Otherwise I feel like the child would have never been created if God would have birthed, had a child birthed to hate. So let's look at this in Proverbs 13, 24, it says, whoever spares the rod hates their child or hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Now, have you seen people that you go, I really wish they would discipline their children a little more? Do you think that person hates their children? Well, no, but you you would look at it and say, maybe they don't love them the same way that I love my children, right? You can play these comparative games. But see, this is what's happening within the Hebrew text. He's like, so you don't spank your child, like the Bible says, you hate your children, it's essentially, right? If we took it literally, that would be the statement we would, we would hear, right? That's, and he's saying, but those who do discipline according to scripture love their children. Now, we could get onto that if y'all want to start some sort of like feud and debate right now. We'll move on. Matthew 6, 24, it says, no man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one or love the other, right? Again, we're seeing it used as a comparative statement. Luke 14, 26, if any, this is Jesus, if anyone comes to me and does not hate their father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, do you think Jesus truly intends for all of us who choose to follow Christ and become a disciple of Christ to then hate our family? No. 
It's not the case. It's not Jesus saying, hey, if you're married, you need to hate your spouse. Uh, If you still have parents, you need to hate them because you need to love me only and you have to hate and despise it. That's That's not the case here. What we're seeing here is the use of comparison. And that was a, a common use within the, that, that Hebrew culture of saying, okay, you have love and hate. They're used to compare almost as balancing kind of things. Like, well, this one is loved more, right? So it isn't a statement to say that Esau was born and God, without the child doing anything, just hated him. And so it's not a direct hatred in that sense. It is to say that, that there was less affection because there is this blessing from God on the life of Jacob because through him comes then the birth of the Messiah. It's this whole craziness. Now, again, it's the sovereignty of God. Can we fully grasp it and understand it? No. Can we trust it? Yeah. Do we need to? Yes. So let's keep working through this, because it, it just keeps getting better. It's really good. So verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Paul just says, be quiet and go sit down over there. They said, okay. yeah, yes, sir. And then they read it later and like, oh man, he put that in there. I think that's what happened. There's no commentators believe I never gets talked about. Uh, so shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory. So let's talk for a minute about the objects of God's mercy. You see, God's not unjust, right? And we just showed kind of how the language is used between this love and this hatred thing, right? So this is where things start to get really fun, especially when you start talking about Pharaoh. And it says, and he hardened his heart. Now, you, when you look in Exodus and the understanding of, of Pharaoh, and I'm jumping ahead of myself, but just a bit, so we'll just roll with it. If you look in Exodus and you, and you see the story of the plagues and Moses coming before him and says, let my people go. Uh, and, and Pharaoh says, not happening, right? And then he says, okay, fine, but just know you're bringing this on yourself, so to speak, right? He's like, and all of a sudden we go through the 10 plagues, right? And we go through this whole process. And finally, to the point where the angel of death comes and all of a sudden Pharaoh in his anger essentially just says, get out of here, go. I don't, you know, my son is dead, get out of here, right? And, and we see, and it says in there that, that he, in his sin, he hardened his heart towards God. So here's what we find. So the statement that Paul is saying is, listen, God didn't directly himself harden the heart of Pharaoh, but he didn't stop it either. 
He didn't come in and say, no, 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 Pharaoh. No, no, let's stay soft. Let's stay pliable. Let's stay workable so that hopefully you turn. Because at this point, the Lord said, fine, if you're going to turn from me, if you're going to reject me, if, you're, if that's the choice, then I am going to step back and allow you to make your choices. And God uses that in his sovereignty. God says, that's fine. So understanding that, that in every choice, in every decision that, that Pharaoh is making, he's doing so willfully. He's making his choices, and God is not stopping him. He is not uh, stepping in and going, okay, if you continue in this direction, you're going to become angry with me, and you're going to harden your heart. And you're gonna, no, he's not going to. He's saying, listen, that through the choices you're making and the, and the things that you're doing, you are hardening your heart, and I'm going to allow it to happen because I'm not going to intervene because it is accomplishing my purpose. I believe 100% that God didn't just reach down and grab the heart of, of Pharaoh and go, be hardened. But I believe that through decision after decision after decision after decision, that Pharaoh just slipped further and further into the hardening of his heart to the point to where the Lord said, my glory will be seen. I will be glorified. I will be glorified. Here's one of the great things about the sovereignty of God. God will accomplish his purpose in spite of us. And that's encouraging uh, because that means that I'm not so important in the plan of God's sovereignty and God's plan that, that I can't screw it up. I can be a part of helping it. And, and if I just start to get in the way, the Lord will go, that's, that's great. Be quiet and sit down over there. I can still do it. It's the encouragement in that is that it doesn't rest on you and I. It doesn't rest on you and I. For God to reveal himself to us and fulfill his will, he may bring forth a king that ultimately is hardened towards God. He may allow a prostitute to be in the lineage of his son's ancestry or a murderer. Judah's offspring came from committing fornication with his dead son's wife. Yet from that birth, we eventually end up with Jesus. His perfect plan is greater than our understanding of him and his choices will often cause us pause. <laughs> but he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion and mercy on whom he will have mercy. He does not do this because of individual worthiness or righteousness, but to fulfill his purpose. Don't overvalue the chosen person or undervalue God's right to choose. I like when, when Paul says, the potter has the right to choose what he uses that clay for, whether he makes it for ceremonial purposes, or special purposes, or for common use. So we can't say to the potter, why did you make me like this? We just simply trust in the Lord and say, God, I want to be used for whatever purpose you have called me to be used for, whether that's special or common. Within the kingdom of God, we're all needed. And God wants to use us all to fulfill and accomplish his purpose. I want to talk for a moment out of verse 22 and 23 about the word uh, prepared. The word prepared means to cause to be fully qualified. 
to cause to be fully qualified. When you look at that word. And I want to talk about for a moment just where it says that that those prepare for, to receive the wrath, right? And notice that he says there that he bore with great patience. Here's how I interpret that. Here's how I see that, is that, that God is giving opportunities and moments for all people to come to know Christ. I, I, I don't believe that God has created any of humanity with the in direct intention to send them to hell. I just have a hard time grasp or thinking that there is a part of the population that has been born that has been doomed to an eternity in hell. I believe fully that, that, that all people have the opportunity and the right to know Christ and that God has ordained it in such a way. Revelation says that whosoever will, whosoever will, the opportunity is there for all people. And in John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. And that included all people within that. It wasn't a, for God so loved a part of the population. No, no, so, so salvation is for, so when I say, when I see that he bore with great patience the object of his wrath, what I see in that is that God is giving opportunity and allowing moment and moment for people to respond to the glory of God. I even think of Pharaoh in that moment. What all did God have to do to try to get his attention to say, hey, these are my people. Let's just, let's just be done and we separate and, and we go forward and, and you recognize my glory and who I am. And yet in all of that, Pharaoh's pride begins to swell up within him. And he says, I will not let these people go. And to the point where, the, where God says, I'm sorry, but I, I have to take drastic measures at this point. And he sends the death angel and the firstborn. And, and we know the story. I believe when he says he bore with great patience, it's not just an immediate, oh, sorry, you had your chance. But there's patience. And he's going, come on, come on, come on. Until the moment when they say, my heart is hardened towards you, and I reject. And the same for those that are prepared for his glory are those that, that, that then turn to Christ and say, Father, I accept you. I step into this faith and this new life in you and this creation that you have called me to be. And he says, and in that, I am, he has prepared us then for his glory to cause to be fully qualified. Verse 24. Even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there you will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What is this telling us? That even the Gentiles are considered worthy to receive, not worthy, but are able to receive Christ. 
It's not the Jews alone, right? He's saying that now there's, even though the, the Israelites be like the numbers of the sand by the sea, we're talking about just an infinite amount. If you say it, it may be the most ridiculous amount of people, even though the number is large, only a remnant. Why? Because it's all based on faith. And he says, and in that, even though they weren't Israel, they are now called a part of the family because of what? Faith. It all comes back to our faith in Jesus Christ. In all of this, in all of this, God is working his sovereign plan. The good news for you and I is that it is open to all people. That's one of the most encouraging words that we could ever hear is that salvation is available to everybody. It's available to all of mankind. No one's given a free pass. No one's given a free pass. But in faith, we can receive Christ. And then the last three verses. Sorry, in verse 30, it says, What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? A righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel... Israel, who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. This is kind of where Paul makes a, a little bit of shift in thought process. He, he moves from sovereignty to human responsibility kind of in this moment. Notice Paul never uses the, fir- the term non-elect, right? He only uses the term elect. Faith is, this is emphasizing faith in this moment, right? He's saying like you, you are, it is through faith. Here's the paradox. The Jews sought righteousness but did not find it while the Gentiles who were not searching for it found it. So the Jews are pursuing doing good and keeping the law, keeping the commands and doing all this. Because if I do right, if I do good, if I'm good enough, that ultimately God will look at me and say, hey, you're doing all right. And on the flip side, the Gentiles are going, if I just place my faith in him, I can receive his righteousness. And the Jews struggled with this. And Paul's going, do you, do you see the difference here? It's about grace and forgiveness It's not about what you do to please God. So while the Israelites felt that the Jews had to come up to their level, the reality was that they had to humble themselves to the level of the Gentiles to a place of repentance and receiving Christ. Instead of allowing their religious privileges to lead them to Christ, they use their privileges as a substitute for Christ. But here's what's great, and we'll talk about this more next week, is that their rejection meant salvation for us. Paul's final statement in chapter 9 here comes from Isaiah 28, verse 16. It says, uh, he talks about Christ as being a sure foundation, right? He said, this is cornerstone. He says, this is, the corner, this is what we need to be built on. This is uh, what it is. This is what we build upon. 
Israel rejected him and ultimately it became a stumbling stone. It became something in the way. When I think of it, I think of it as something like, why have you ever had one of those things where, where you know you need to move it because you just keep tripping over it every time you walk through? You're like, when am I ever going to pick this box up? Every time I come through here, I just I know it's there and I still forget it's there and I still trip over it, right? And he's saying this is what they've done with Jesus, right? He's this cornerstone and he kind of just was in the way. Just kind of in it. So then it becomes this object of frustration. Because you finally get to that point where you're like, I'm moving this box here. And then it's on your desk and you're like, why did I put it there? <laughs> Got to work there now, right? And you have this whole like conflict of like, why is it here? And he's saying, so Jesus had become this object of frustration that was constantly just tripped over and stumbled over and back and forth. And you're going, I wish it was just out of the way. And this all goes back to the heart of Paul and his hurting and his longing for the people of Israel. When you've taken the Messiah that was given to you and now he's just a source of frustration. But because of it, those who receive it finally obtain the righteousness that the Jews were seeking and trying to find. By grace, through faith, We have to understand something here is that, that God's sovereignty and human responsibility are not competing with each other. And that's, and that's a hard concept at times, but that they are working in communion or in cooperation with each other. Charles Spurgeon was asked how to reconcile uh, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and he replied, I never try to reconcile friends which that's like, thank you, Spurgeon. So I never try to reconcile friends. They work hand in hand, right? In our ability to choose and in our free will, God's sovereignty is at work. There are things we can't fully grasp and understand, and there are things that God may do that will cause us to go, what just happened? But in all of that, we can place our trust in him and our faith in him and say, I know that in all these things, you are working them together for the good of those who have been called by him, who love him, who trust him. God is working his purpose in all things. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Grace Hill is always about knowing God and growing in God, and we want to hear from you. If you have a prayer request or a question, you can email us at info at gracehill.cc.